hearing this morning about Bon Air said, you know nothing at all. There's a leader for you. That's what he said. He's an old school leader, isn't he, folks? You know nothing at all. Do you not consider, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Oh, I love the next two verses. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he would gather together and one the children of God who were scattered abroad. He did not know that God put those words in his mouth. He was saying them in anger and frustration and disdain for Jesus. And God says, you just spoke the truth. One man shall die for all. He didn't know that it wasn't even his own authority that put those words on his lip. Though he said them in sin, they were still true. Let's pray again. Father, we pray that your word would shine the light of truth wisdom, and comfort, and understanding, and even salvation if someone here does not know you as Lord and Savior. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, <clears throat> these things were real. Everything, some people question, did Jesus really exist? Did these things really happen? They happened, and much of the world was an eyewitness to it all. And if Jesus didn't come on this rescue mission, then you and I have no hope for salvation, do we? But for Israel, as Jesus came during this time of the season uh, around Passover, they were gathered. Jesus' name was well known to many. Some didn't know who he was. Many did know who he was, but Throngs were descending upon Jerusalem because they revered the Passover. This is why we started in Exodus chapter 12. They revered the Passover. And I want to take you through some things this morning that will allow you to understand the connection of the Passover season and Jesus, the Passover Lamb of God. Passover in Hebrew is Pesach. You might hear that word uh, sometime, and you might see it spelled that way, and you've got the Hebrew spelling there at the top. You're reading right to left uh, if you're looking at the Hebrew. But Passover was when Israel had been set free from slavery in Egypt. Remember Abraham, when he was given the promise that Israel would become a great nation, the Lord told Abraham your seed, your people are going to go down to another country and they're going to be stuck there for 400 years. And they'll be enslaved there and they'll suffer there. But then God would raise up a deliverer. And his name was Moses. God raised up Moses. And Moses, we can look back now and see Moses was a type of Christ. matter of fact, Moses himself prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like me, he said, but him you'll hear, although not the first time, because there's a lot of typology in the Old Testament, 
Even Joseph was. Remember the first time he came to his brothers, his brothers rejected him. The second time they bowed down to him. But Israel had been enslaved there, and God sends a deliverer named Moses. And there's a lot of parallels, and I want to give you seven parallels between Passover and the life of Moses as deliverer and what we now see in our own deliverance from sin. See, the children of Israel, they had an enemy. His name was Pharaoh, and he despised God, and he callously used the people for his own purposes, and Satan will callously use people for his own purposes, and he is our enemy too. Number two, they were enslaved with no way of escape. Egypt had them hemmed in on all sides. They had put them under slavery and under oppression. And you and I, before salvation, if you're still not saved, you're enslaved with no way out unless God comes and provides a way out. Number three, God had raised up a prophet to deliver them among them. But not just any prophet. This prophet, when he was born a baby, was miraculously saved from a death decree given to all the baby boys. Many years later, another baby boy is born, and another death decree goes out to all the baby boys. Moses escaped it. Jesus escaped it. Both of them This prophet, Moses, this deliverer, he was raised, his childhood was in Egypt. Along comes Jesus, his childhood was where? Egypt. See, with God, prophecy follows a recurring track until it reaches its full fulfillment. Moses, the deliverer, tells the people that a spotless lamb must be killed and the shed blood must be applied to the doorpost at the top and on the two sides of each home. And you and I, unless the blood of Jesus is applied to our hearts, we are not ready for the judgment either. Number six, the people are told that this is a life and death decision because when Moses says, this is what you must do, You can say, I'm not going to do that. You can say, that doesn't make any sense. I've never had to put blood on my door before. Why should I do it now? That doesn't make any sense. It's too simple. Do you hear people say this about the gospel? It's too simple. How could it be that way? And why? You can accept the message and apply the blood and see your house spared and saved, or you can reject the message and not apply the blood, and then the judgment and the death that will come upon that home will be one's own decision. We have the same valley of decision for each of us in our life. The people are told, and the seventh thing here, the people are told to eat unleavened bread, and they're to be ready Unleavened is often a picture of sin, to get rid of all the sin. Only Jesus can get rid of the sin in our lives, but they were also told to be ready to leave immediately because Egypt 
was not their home. And folks, if you're a believer, you're to be ready because this world is not your home. For those that were Jewish living in the first century, they were living in Jerusalem. If they were living in the land of Israel, not everybody for Passover, which we'll take a look in a second, was living in the land of Israel. But those that were living in the land of Israel and called that home, they were there as a direct result of what? This Passover many years earlier. Because if Israel hadn't been delivered from Egypt, they wouldn't be in Israel. And so they recognize that the freedom, although they're under the Roman Empire at that time, it's not in their minds the freedom that they desire, but it's not the slavery they had in Egypt. That was a direct result of God delivering them. Now between the time of 400 B.C. and A.D. 50, the temple is actually destroyed in A.D. 70 by Titus, but between 400 B.C. and A.D. 50, the Passover became tremendously important to the Jewish people during that time. I don't know if you knew that. That's called the intertestament period. Or you sometimes hear that referred to as the silent years because the scriptures had been completed with the book of Malachi and it's not until John comes on the scene and then Jesus shortly after and then the, the gospels burst forth because Jesus himself is the gospel, and then later the writers will write about the gospels and the epistles. But that intertestament period, that 450 years, is when the Passover became so precious to the Jewish people. It should have been precious to them prior, but that's when it became the most precious in their history. It was significant because prior to the Babylonian captivity, if you've been here on Wednesday nights in our Ezekiel study, Prior to the Babylonian captivity, back when they were still a sovereign nation and they had their own kings, right? This goes back to David and Solomon and then all the kings that preceded them in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They had neglected the Passover during those times. When they had their own land and their own kings, they had neglected the Passover. How do we know this? Well, 2 Kings, and it also tells us 2 Chronicles, but 2 Kings chapter 23, listen to verses 21 to 23. This was under Josiah the king. Then the king commanded the people, saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of covenant. Such a Passover surely had not been held since the days of the judges who were judged, judges in Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. Josiah had to have some of the greatest reforms in the history of Israel to get everyone to come back and re-embrace the Passover and care about it the way it was supposed to be kept when it was given under Moses. Let's take a look. Now that gives you a background of Passover itself. Where did it come from? Why were the Jewish people so intent on getting to Jerusalem and keeping the Passover. The Lord had actually used the captivity of Babylon to actually stir in the hearts that they would return to the Passover. And for that 450 years, it became bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where Jerusalem began to overflow during Passover season. We'll take a look at what's taking place here when Jesus arrives, we read those passages uh, in Luke. I mean, sorry, in Matthew chapter 
uh, 21, where he comes in on a donkey. So Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. It's just prior to Passover. At the time of his arrival, thousands of Jews have descended upon Jerusalem from the villages and the towns um, of Israel, of course, uh, but also faraway lands, north, east, south, west. Uh, Some are alone. Many come in caravans. As a matter of fact, most would come in caravans. Some of them have come on ships via the Mediterranean or boats or even up the Red Sea if they're coming from parts of Africa or even parts of Asia. Josephus estimates the city of Jerusalem, which was about 100,000 people when there wasn't Passover happening, would swell to 2 million. Now, some have said that's an exaggeration. He said it wasn't. He was there. We weren't, so we can, take, we can either take his word for it or not. This is, gives you an idea of what Jerusalem looked like uh, in the time of Christ. You can see the temple. It was massive, wasn't it? It dominated the city landscape. All the little houses around the, around the temple looked tiny comparison to the temple. The temple was magnificent. It was huge. Matter of fact, Jesus will give the Olivet Discourse in the week that, that he goes to the cross, the very week it's up here where he'll sit and he'll look across the temple and he'll tell the disciples every single one of those stones will be turned upside down. Of course, that validates his entire prophecy of the Olivet Discourse, which actually refers to our time because then he goes into the end of the age and the coming of the Son of Man and the disciples looking at that magnificent temple were like, how in the world could that thing be destroyed? It dwarfs everything else. It's like its own mountain. And yet it was. And, and I've said this before, it would be akin to us seeing something like the U.S. Capitol just disintegrating and gone before our very eyes. We would know that something big was happening. That would happen 70 years uh, again, 70 A.D., this would be after the cross, but this is where Jesus, that final week, would actually give the Olivet Discourse telling about the end times and the end of the temple. But um, I want to share with you something from a gentleman by the name of Hyen Schaus. He was Jewish, and he wrote a book called The Guide to Jewish Holy Days. He wrote it in 1938. Interesting that he wrote it in 1938, um, He did not know when he wrote it in 1938, the guide to the Jewish holy days, this man was a meticulous um, historian and to go back and to piece together all of the ancient records and anything that was out there that he could find to contribute to how the Jewish people had kept the feasts and festivals, not just Passover, but the others as well, but all the Jewish feasts and festivals, how they had kept them, uh, and little did he know in 1938, that the Jewish people would be entering the worst Holocaust in their history in that very period of time from 38 to the early 40s is when Adolf Hitler would run over millions of Jews uh, there in Europe. But he wrote this book, Guide to the Jewish Holy Days, and he's reminding, he's reminding the Jewish people, now bear in mind, this man was not a Christian. He was not a born-again Christian. He was Jewish, he practiced Judaism, but he was not a Christian. But many men that women that are not Christians still have given us authentic history. And we use their history to understand facts that the Bible claims 
100% verifiable, and then we find, oh wow, the Bible really is accurate. And this is what he wrote about the pilgrims heading to Jerusalem. He said, at no time in its long and varied history was Jerusalem as beautiful and as thickly populated as in the years preceding the destruction of the second temple. That was, And here he says the destruction of the second temple, he doesn't even realize Jesus is the one that prophesied of that. In addition to the permanent dwellers, the three great festivals would bring countless pilgrims from near and far from every country to which the Jews had wandered. Holidays, especially at Pesach. No matter in what corner of the world the Jews lived, Jerusalem was a holy place to them. And the greatest wish of each and every Jew was to enter the inner court of the temple at least once in their lifetime to pray to God to the accompaniment of holy music of the Levites. At no other time of the year did so many pilgrims descend upon Jerusalem as at the season of Pesach, when nature newly carpeted the brown earth with green, and the fields of Judah seemed a tapestry of flowers gleaming and glistening in the sun. There was, too, a great difference in the outward appearance of these pilgrims. Side by side, you would see poor Jewish peasants who had traveled from various districts of Palestine on donkeys and rich Jewish merchants or bankers that arrived from distant lands by boat. He also talked about the fact that Babylonian women, Jewish women coming from Babylon, would be brightly colored. The Jewish women that were from Palestine, which, which we don't call that, but the Israel today would have been in bright white linen. And so you would be able to tell which Jewish people were from different regions of the world. He said they came in every color of skin because the Jewish race is actually just a kaleidoscope. Throngs of people, especially those in and around the Sea of Galilee, they, throngs of people had actually heard Jesus teach. They've heard him teach from the law and prophets. Some have personally heard him cry out that men must repent from their sins and believe on him. Some have heard him claim that he can forgive sins. Some saw and heard him say words to someone, your sins are forgiven. Many heard him pray to the Father. Many heard him teach about heaven. Many heard him expound on the kingdom of God, expound on hell, prayer, even Satan in the demonic realm. Remember, many of those coming to Jerusalem had heard Jesus teaching in all those villages around Galilee. Men debated who he was because he seemed wiser than Solomon, more knowledgeable of the law and prophets than any of the scribes and Pharisees, And he had the boldness of John who had been beheaded by Herod. And he had the boldness of what they perceived of Elijah and the ancient prophets, even Moses himself. Many marveled that aside from his powerful message and command of the scriptures, many would marvel he was unmistakably compassionate. People would say, he speaks with authority. He knows the whole scriptures but he's really compassionate to people. Whether it was children or women or Gentiles or tax collectors or Roman leaders or poor or the grieving or deceased or those that were diseased, those that were grieving over a death. But some gathering in Jerusalem had perhaps been there the day that the Spirit and the dove descended upon Jesus when he was baptized 
in the Jordan River. Many from Galilee, from Syria, from southern Lebanon and beyond, they had come and they had found Jesus. They had tracked down which village he was at at different times, and they had seen his miracles firsthand. Some had seen him heal the blind. Some of them were formerly the blind. Some had seen him heal lepers. Some had seen him heal the lame. Some had seen him cast out demons from violent and uncontrollable individuals. Some saw him feed thousands by taking some fish and loaves and repeatedly distributing it, and it just didn't stop. Some had never seen Jesus. Even, remember, as the city is swelling with numbers from all over the known world of Jewish pilgrims coming from everywhere, some had never seen Jesus, but they'd heard about him. Who is this guy? You saw in the text, they said, who is this? Because Jews coming from like Cyprus or Libya or different places, they hadn't heard of him per se, but they see the buzz. Who is this? But some actually knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who is impacted by him personally. Kind of the way our testimonies work today. Some would say, you know, I know someone or I was the someone who had a personal encounter with this carpenter from Nazareth. Many others, they've only heard reports. But the reports seem so verifiable and yet amazing that they're as fixated on Jesus or finding and hearing him during this Passover season as they are in participating in the Passover itself. It's becoming a parallel. Passover and this Jewish carpenter, both are arriving at the same time, and it's not a coincidence, is it? To add to all this, in the town of Bethany, this is ancient Bethany, the little town of Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, it's right there. You can see it's only less than a two-mile walk. You go around you can take it either way. You can take the, uh, which would be the north side of the Mount of Olives, or you can go to the south side of the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley, through the Jer- Jericho Road, and over to Bethany. It's only a short walk because on holy days, on Sabbath days, the Jewish people are only allowed to travel a very short distance according to the law. So Jesus has to be someplace where he can go back and lodge, which is according to the law, in the amount of steps he is able to take and the distance he can walk on a daily basis. Again, this was all relative to the law. But in this little town of Bethany, adding to all the buzz about Christ, it was there you find the home of Lazarus. That's Mary and Martha's brother. Jesus had raised him from the dead. And this was not something that no one knew about. In fact, this was huge news. Not, the reason why is look how close it is to Jerusalem. This wasn't up in Galilee in some village in the northern hinterlands of ancient Israel. This was just outside of Jerusalem. And this allowed the people from Jerusalem and the land of Judah and the people that were coming for Passover, everyone could take a short little walk out to Bethany and go see Lazarus personally. Right? They could verify for themselves, hey, he raised this guy from the dead. You should go out there. It's a short walk. 
Lazarus' resurrection had made Bethany a must-visit location, and Lazarus himself had become a bit of a celebrity. Not that he wanted to be. That's not the kind of celebrity status most of you want. I died. I was raised from the dead, and now people think you are amazing. Even though he didn't do it. In John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11 said, Now a great many of Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Well, these are some loving religious leaders, aren't they? <laughs> we'll kill him a second time. We don't know how he died the first time, but the second time would have been murder. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. This is the worst possible scenario for the religious leaders. We've got millions ascent, we've got thousands of people ascending on Jerusalem. Jesus has not too far back raised Lazarus from the dead. The, the house of Lazarus just outside the city, and all the people who knew about it keep telling the people who don't know about it, you've got to hear this guy preach, you've got to hear this guy teach, and you've got to go meet the guy he raised from the dead. And when you do, you'll be convinced that a prophet mighty is among us. And so people were convinced. This is not any man. This is uh, Bethany today. If you get to go to Israel, you can go to Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. still exists. The Bible's always true, folks. The places are real. The people are real. The things took place exactly as the writers of Scripture tell us. And this is, um, this is the Mount of Olives today. Matter of fact, I took this picture when we were in Jerusalem. You see these buses? Right there, cutting right through all these, uh, these are Jewish tombs on the Mount of Olives. Of course, when Jesus was there, this was all grass. The Jewish tombs weren't there. They're all there on the east side because they believe the resurrection will take place on the east. They want to be the first to rise from the dead. <laughs> I hate to tell them we're all rising at the same time if you're <laughs> saved, but nevertheless, legalistic things will make you do some crazy stuff, folks. But... The Jericho Road essentially is still there. See it? Cuts right across. The same as it did thousands of years ago. The Jericho Road comes around, cuts across, and then it goes down into the city. You can see a little Jewish Orthodox ceremony taking place right here. Isn't that cool? But in addition to all the attention about Jesus as a teacher and a preacher, as a healer, as a prophet and the accompanying miracles that he had, even a raising man from the dead. There's this building hope among the Jewish people that Jesus could be, could he possibly be? Is he the one that can help us escape the grip of Rome like Moses did with Egypt? Back to Hyann Schaus' Guide to Jewish Holy Days. Listen to what he writes. Remember, he's not a born-again Christian. I'm amazed when I see Jewish people that don't know Christ as their personal Messiah, as their Lamb of God, actually say things that I'm like, I want to hold the Bible and say, did you just hear what you said? 
And this is what he writes. So Pesach became the festival of the second as well as the first redemption. In every part of the world where Jews lived, especially in Palestine, Jewish hearts would beat faster on the eve of Pesach, beating with the hope that this night the Jews would be freed from their bondage of Rome, just as their ancestors were released from Egyptian slavery. The highest point in the evolution of Pesach came in the last century of the second temple. God sent Jesus at the highest point. He said it all happened at the highest point in the last century of the second temple when the Jews suffered from the heavy oppression of the Romans. It was during this period that the messianic hope flamed up. And in the minds of the Jews, the deliverance of the future became bound up with the first redemption in Jewish history, the deliverance from Egypt. Jews had long believed that the deliverance to come, they had believed that a deliverance would come and that God would show the same sort of miracles that he had performed in redeeming the Jews from Egypt. This belief added strength in the period of the Roman occupation oppression. Jews began to believe that the Messiah would be a second Moses. He's identifying why all this buzz is, all the roads are colliding at the same time. That Jesus is returning for the last time for Passover. He's been there before. You'll recall he was there at 12 years old. His parents lost him there for three days because he was amazing. All the scribes and the people in the temple with his knowledge of the Old Testament, that was at Passover. This is his last Passover. The whole of Jerusalem is there. The Jews from around the world are there. The miracles have been done. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And they are convinced this has to be the second Moses. Has to be. So this is why as people are thronging into Jerusalem, and you can see they're entering this picture. There's the east gate that today is sealed. And Jesus will enter it again according to the book of Ezekiel at the end of the age. But as they're coming down the Mount of Olives, this would be on the Jericho Road right here in through the east gate, directly into the temple grounds. But it's along this road that people will actually get on both sides of the road and make way for the one they think is the second Moses. And they start cutting off palm branches, and they start laying them down, and they're shouting Hosanna, and the word is going out all over, and Caiaphas, the high priest, is about to lose his mind. Because he thinks, not only is this a threat to me, we could be on the end of a Roman sword if this, if this erupts. And also, he doesn't like Passover being disrupted. So as Jesus approaches Jerusalem down the Mount of Olives through this throng of waving palm branches surrounding him, these shouts of praise, and they're saying Hosanna. You know what Hosanna means? It means save now. Little do they know Jesus is coming to save now, but not from Rome. In ancient times, the palm branches were a symbol of goodness and victory. When you won battles, you waved the palm branch. And folks, Jesus was coming to win a huge victory, but not the one they thought. In Revelation 7-9. Did you know that someday those of us who are saved 
are going to wave palm branches. If you've never waved one in your entire life, you're going to wave them if you're saved. Revelation 7, 9, And as I looked, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hand because that victory celebration is the real one. This one was a foreshadow. And they didn't know the victory that was coming. But as he enters the city that day, exactly according to the prophecy that Daniel had foretold in Daniel chapter 9, when the Persian king Artaxerxes would speak of the 69th week, from the time the temple was rebuilt to the end of that 69th week, Messiah would enter the city. Messiah means anointed. Jesus was the anointed one. They did not know that he had come not to set them free from Rome's ironclad rule, but he had come to give them life. Not to receive anything, but to give. He didn't come to receive. He came to give, to pour out his blood. And later, that week would be his final Passover meal. He himself would partake in a Passover meal And you'll recall, he was in Jerusalem in other times, but this time was different. This time he was there for the last time to partake and to reveal it all, what it all meant. This Passover week, where all of these things coincided, the people coming, the time, the period, the highest period in the Jewish reverence of Passover, all of these things and it was the Father's chosen will that that very week, and you'll, by the way, you'll hear Christians argue, well, it was A.D. 30. No, it was A.D. 32. No, it was A.D. 33. And you'll have lunar calendars out, and you'll have all this stuff. When we get to heaven, we're all going to find out who was right about this, but we'll know for certain it all took place. That's why I won't argue about, was it A.D. 30, A.D. 33? And I, I, you can make arguments for all of these things. But it definitely took place exactly the way the Bible says. But the main thing is this right here. Jesus came not for the Passover celebration, but to be the Passover lamb. The propitiation for our sins. Take a quick look, and we'll just make, look at Matthew chapter 26 for just a second. Matthew chapter 26, we'll come to a close in just a minute here, but I want you to see this. Matthew 26, in verses 26 to 30, Jesus takes of the Lord's Supper, which was the Passover meal. You know that from the previous verses. Read verses, not on your own time, you can read verses 17 through 25. Jesus takes of the Passover, tells them that this is his actual body, that this is his blood, in verse 28 of chapter 26. Then he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he's betrayed by Judas. Then, and that's in verses 47 through 56, then he faces the kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin. First he's led to the home of the high priest. 
where he is falsely accused and condemned, and they believe after they all gather that he's deserving of death. And by the way, the fact that they had the entire Sanhedrin there in the middle of the night is unprecedented. To have all the Sanhedrin gather there in the middle of the night, this was all done with premeditation to murder Christ. They don't meet in the middle of the night, folks. Right? Congress is probably not going to meet tonight at 2 a.m. They didn't either. It was all pulled together to frame an innocent Savior who didn't need to be framed because he was laying down his life anyway. But it all had to happen this way that it would fulfill all the law and the prophets. And so the follow, and as, he's, as he, in the middle of the night, which would be a new day in the Jewish calendar, but as he's convicted, then he goes to Pontius Pilate in the 27th chapter. And by 9 a.m., He's on the cross where they put, in verse 37, above him, this is the king of the Jews. They wanted a king. They didn't want a lamb. They didn't know they were getting a lamb. They wanted a king, but the victory was their souls. And then finally, in verses 45 through 56, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was during this time that the temple veil Verse 51, inside the temple, the priesthood, they would have been amazed to see the veil just cut in two. It would have taken a team of oxen to do this, and all of a sudden, God with his finger or whatever he does, temple veil splits. The earth begins to quake. Verse 52, graves are opened. Some people who are dead come alive. You You would think if you were there, thousands of people would have to say, We have done something wrong today. Maybe he really was who he said he was. And look at, oh, I love verse 54, Roman centurion and those who are with him. These were men that perhaps actually put the nails in Jesus. They see the earthquake. They see the things happening. They're not even Jewish. They're Romans. And they say, truly, this was the Son of God. They didn't have any of the biblical background. They didn't know the scriptures. All they said is, This ain't Jupiter, our gods. This is the Son of God. Some of the Roman soldiers were immediately convinced and pricked in their heart, just like one of the thieves on the cross immediately knew, Lord, remember me. He dies this cruel and horrific death. During that week before the cross, Jesus was vetted, just like you know, the lamb for Passover had to be checked for spot and blemish. And during the week, Jesus, inside the temple, had actually talked with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they had tried to test him, and no one could find any fault in him at all. That's why they had to falsely accuse him. That all took place in the temple. By the way, that is where the Western Wall is today, if you look at, you know, sometimes referred to as the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. But that's the piece that remains today if you go to Israel. But Jesus was vetted, found without fault, but then murdered as he laid down his own life for your sins and my sins. The high priest, they had long made their decision that the Passover lamb, well, they didn't know he was the Passover lamb, but that's who he was. They didn't understand that When Caiaphas made that statement that we read, 
it's expedient that one man should die, they were helping to fulfill, even though they were in gross sin, and we would have been the same way because you and I aren't guilt, guiltless either. They were the ones putting him on the cross, and yet what they were doing was fulfilling the will of the Father. In Isaiah 53, it said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He, didn't, he, he let their accusations and their lies fly. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Remember how quiet he was in front of Pontius Pilate. They marveled at him. He had entered the week, earlier in the week, sitting on the foal of a donkey, but at the end of the week, he wasn't sitting on a donkey. He was outstretched on a wooden cross with his feet and his hands nailed to the cross. When he was born in Bethlehem, there was no room for him. When he came to Jerusalem for this final Passover, they thought he was their deliverer. Then they changed their mind and said, give us Barabbas. And they cast him outside the city. So Bethlehem didn't have room for him, and Jerusalem cast him out. Out of the city. And it was right, we don't know exactly, but I believe it was up here where the Golgotha is. I've been in the garden tomb, and right there where Golgotha sits right beside it. And so he was killed, he was crucified by the Romans, but under the order of the high priest and the Jewish leaders, they were the ones that condemned to death. Because remember, Pilate was like, wanted to set him free. The non-religious people sometimes see truth more than the religious people. They wanted to set him free. Pilate said, I don't, I don't see any fault in him. Pilate probably knew, I see a lot of fault in you guys. I know you all well, right? You guys are full of lies. This man's honest. But he was cast out and killed among common criminals. Cicero said, Cicero said that of the cross, it was the cruelest and most disgusting of penalty. Josephus said it was the most pitiable of deaths. But Jesus, unlike a lamb, you know when you when the lamb was killed for Passover, that was done humanely. It's called kosher. The animal has no pain, no suffering, doesn't know that it was killed. It still would be traumatic for maybe a young child to see the first time that this lamb that they like to hold and play with is killed, but at least the lamb doesn't feel any pain. Jesus was not killed in a kosher fashion. He was killed in a barbaric, wicked, demonic fashion. Matter of fact, the demon world behind the scenes would have been laughing and loving Jesus' torment. Matthew 16 Jesus, well before he had gone on the cross, he said Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands. He even told them who? The elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, but on the third day he would rise again. The suffering of the cross was indescribable. C.S. Lewis said the cross did not become a symbol of the arts until all who had seen a real one died off. 
It'd be like us wearing an electric chair on our necklace, right? It's until everyone had not seen one that was like, hey, let's paint it. Let's put it in stuff. The people that had seen one in the first century had no desire to wear it as an ornament. It was many years later after people had not seen a real crucifixion. John W. Stott said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. It was the will of the Father that the cross would be the epicenter of the Christian faith and what it means to really repent. Because there had to be a real suffering for our sins, which are grievous and wicked and many. In England, there was a church with a sign outside, and it had the affixed letters, We Preach Christ Crucified. But over time, the crucified fell off, and it just said, We Preach Christ. And later, the Christ fell off, and it just said, We Preach. And folks, today, in 2015, if we don't preach the cross... And Christ crucified, we have nothing to preach about. We have nothing to tell anyone about. You might as well not even invite a person to church or anything else because if they don't come to the foot of the cross, then everything Jesus did was completely pointless. But it wasn't pointless, was it? It's not pointless. He fulfilled everything, everything, Going back to the Passover, he fulfilled everything that the Father, he said, Lord, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But he said, not my will, but thine be done. He had to come. He had to die. He had to bleed. He had to suffer. I'll close with this poem. It's called The Maker of the Universe. It says, his holy fingers formed the bow where grew the thorns that crowned his brow. Nails that pierced the hands were mined in secret places he designed. He made the forest whence there sprung the tree on which his holy body hung. He died upon a cross of wood, yet made the hill on which it stood. The sun which hid him from its face by his decree was poised in space. The sky which darkened o'er his head by him above the earth was spread. The spear that split his precious blood was tempered in the fires of God. The grave in which his form was laid was hewn in rocks which he had made. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you. We know that you are not a man that you can lie. That Jesus, you really did come. You really did fulfill the Passover. You really are our Passover lamb, that we really look to you and we say, behold, the lamb of God. You really did bleed and die for the sins of all those Jewish that gathered there in Jerusalem, even those that thronged for Barabbas after days earlier, cheering and praising your name. Lord, we too have betrayed you, and yet you still bid us to come to the old rugged cross where we could be forgiven, where we can apply the blood of the Passover lamb 
to the doorpost of our heart, as was done so long ago on those doors there in Egypt. And Jesus, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for coming on a rescue mission, for being the Passover lamb. We have many times not even been willing to give a few minutes of time or even of the material blessings you've given us and you gave your very own blood to die for our sins. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being our Passover lamb. 